taking stock of stock-based compensation. For multinationals, it's no longer just a consideration. It needs to be a top priority, or it could land you in the legal hot seat. We're looking at you, Altera. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Deep Dive Podcast into all things transfer pricing. On today's episode, we're putting stock-based compensation under the microscope and examining why M&Es need to pay close attention to cost-sharing agreements that contain it. Joining us today is Assistant Professor of Accounting and Tax at California Polytechnic State University San Luis Obispo, David Chamberlain. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. It can't be easy being Irish Finance Minister Pascal Donahoe these days. With the countdown to reach a global minimum tax rate agreement at the end of the month and Ireland being one of the more stubborn EU holdouts, the pressure is on. Right now, the proposed global minimum tax rate stands at, quote, at least 15 percent, unquote. And Donahoe has said it's the at least part with which Ireland is struggling. Ireland's corporate tax rate is an incentivizingly low 12.5 percent. And that at least language threatens that Ireland could be forced to tax businesses at a rate that is, quote, significantly higher, unquote. Still, Donahoe isn't unreasonable. He claims with more, quote, certainty and stability, unquote, Ireland would likely enter the agreement. Earlier this week, he was headed to Brussels to continue tax discussions with Margaret Vestager, the European Competition Commissioner. While we know there will be talks, the real question is, will there be compromise? It's no secret that global tax talks on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are coming down to the wire. What still needs to be negotiated? Let's start with Pillar 1. Of course, this proposal reallocates a percentage of profits above a 10% margin incurred by the world's biggest companies. The question is, what is that percentage? In July, governments agreed to between 20 and 30%, but since... Developing countries from the G24 have pleaded for, quote, not less than 30 percent, unquote. France proposed meeting in the middle at 25 percent, but so far there is no definitive consensus. Another complication, unilateral digital services taxes. Will they be rolled back? How? When? In terms of the global minimum tax proposal, known of course as Pillar 2, countries still need to decide on a global minimum tax rate. Quote, at least 15 percent, unquote, as the proposal stands now, is ambiguous enough to have important EU players like Ireland hold off in fear of a corporate tax rate so steep it would leave little room for incentivizing businesses. Pillar 2's minimum tax rate isn't the only to-be-determined piece of the puzzle. There are carve-outs, as in which businesses or industries are exempt from the global tax deal. And then there's substance-based carve-outs, essentially tax deductions based on employee compensation and tangible assets. Both are also on the table. The common denominator for all countries involved is obviously change. But global rewrites promise to impact each country uniquely, which makes negotiations complicated. On October 8th, the 140 countries that make up the inclusive framework will try to hammer out those last details before the G20 signs off at the end of the month at a leaders' summit in Rome. 
Taxpayers with operations in Jordan would be wise to evaluate their transfer pricing policies and ensure that all intercompany transactions are documented. That's right, we said documented. Back in June, in the official Gazette, Jordan issued transfer pricing documentation requirements, and last week, the Jordan Ministry of Finance delivered the full range of details. What does the tax administration want to see from multinational companies? For taxpayers with related party transactions exceeding 500,000 Jordanian dinar, that's approximately 705,000 U.S. dollars in a 12-month period, tax authorities expect companies to comply with the OECD's three-tier documentation regime. That's a master file, a local file, and a country-by-country report if applicable. These documents not only need to be prepared, but they need to be submitted to tax authorities within 12 months after the fiscal year end. A disclosure form as part of the tax return is also required. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with David Chamberlain, Assistant Professor of Accounting and Tax at California State University, San Luis Obispo, taking stock of stock-based compensation and its intersection with transfer pricing. Thanks so much for being with us, Professor. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So first off, welcome back to the show. You've been on before. Always a pleasure having you on. You're due back in the classroom, virtual or live in the upcoming weeks. What are you most looking forward to about the fall 2021 semester? Yeah, yeah. It's like a month off or so now. And I'm really looking forward to just being live again. All of last year and the end of the year before that was you know, all on Zoom. And now we're going to be live and in person. And I'm just I'm just really looking forward to it. That's both for the undergraduates and for the masters in taxation. For the masters in tax, it's a small group. It's a you know less than 20 students. And the intimacy is really, you know, really nice to be there in person. Hopefully I've learned some things during the Zoom time. Some ways that I tried to keep class more engaging on Zoom may come over to the class. We'll see. Yes, we'll have to see. I'm reminded of what the actors said on the set of Planet of the Apes. They had to act through <laughs> the clay masks that were the monkey masks, and it made them better actors. They had to over-emote everything, and I wonder <laughs> if that might be 
sort of the slingshot that that'll propel uh, professors oratory into the future now that we're coming out of COVID. But you've had quite a robust career from being an attorney to director in international accounting firms. Now you're a professor. Did you set out to accomplish all these things or did it happen organically? Did you follow your bliss? <laughs> I think organically is a, is a very good way to put it. Each step was the natural next step, it seemed like. In a way, it's come full circle. I actually started out undergraduate in linguistics and thought I wanted to be a professor back then, but then grew disillusioned with kind of the politics that I saw in uh, academia. But now I've come full around. There is definitely politics, but I'm older and wiser now, and and it doesn't bother me as much. (laughs) Yes, you do have to redefine your relationship with your passions, with the sort of the social environment of everybody else who's very passionate about that field too. And there's no field without it. I've tried. I've looked for it <laughs> high and low. I like to stay away from it as well. I will say transfer pricing, it, it seems to be pretty in the clear. I don't know. I haven't run into too many toxic politics here, uh, at least that we can't talk about on the show in in, in the open <laughs> air. Uh, on that note, what transfer pricing news or legislation developments have you been following lately and why? Yeah, sure. Well, of course, Coca-Cola is on the top, I think, of everyone's mind. Have the courts finally caught up to the real world of transfer pricing, where 95% of what we do is using comparable profits method. Finally, Coca-Cola is the first case where they really accepted it. But having said that, personally, I am really eagerly awaiting the revised tax court decision in the Medtronic case. I've written some articles on the case. And I see it as a real case study in how do you handle risk, the allocation of risk between related parties in transfer pricing. I'm a little bit afraid, you know, even though the appeals court, when they sent it back down, they told the judge that she really has to make a decision on what the split of risk is. I'm a little afraid from what I've heard about the trial that may not go there. On the other hand, there is some indication that she's thinking about devising some kind of hybrid method between a cut comparable uncontrolled transaction and CPM. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see what, what she comes up with. Yes, yes. I, I think our listeners at home will recognize Medtronic from our hot off the press podcast, Redowns, <laughs> of course, along with Altera, which we mentioned before, which kicks off the discussion at hand. What is stock-based compensation? Let's start with that basic question. What is stock-based compensation? Yeah, yeah. So stock-based compensation is any type of compensation that a corporation gives to its employees that is based on its stock or potentially stock options of the company. So it could be restricted stock, could be stock options. The typical stock option plan, if we go back later on, we'll go through the history of all the different cases that have taken place over the years. If we go back to Xilinx, these were the typical stock option. They were at the money options, meaning an option is the right to acquire the stock at a fixed price sometime in the future. And the fixed price for at the money options is the same as the current stock price. So you'll only make money off of an option if the stock price goes up. So the typical case was at the money, they would have a vesting period. So you would not be able to exercise your option until you worked at the company for a certain number of years, such as let's say three years. 
And then after that three years is up, you can exercise the option at any time. That is, put up the money for the old stock price and receive the stock back. You generally have maybe 10 years to do this. There'd be a term. Once you do it, it would typically be a cashless exercise. So you would immediately sell the stock after you exercise the option. The company would help you do this. And the reason you would do it is that in theory, actually holding on to an option as long as possible. If you're an option investor in the real world, you would either hold on to it or sell it. You wouldn't exercise it until the end of the term. But employee stock options can't be transferred. So people will do it when they need the money, when they want to diversify. One other thing to point out, though, is, again, Xilinx was 20 years ago. And stock options were what companies would do. Nowadays, many companies are doing restricted stock units. And in that case, they give you the stock itself. But again, there's a vesting period. So you can't sell the stock until the vesting period is over. If you leave the employment, you forfeit the stock. Unlike options, which will only be valuable if the price of the stock goes up, those are always going to be worth something. Right, right. So, so we've got a good idea of, of how they work right there. What makes uh, stock-based compensation an attractive incentive for both companies and employees? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So from both the perspective of the company and the employee, it's a way of uniting their interests. It gives the employee a stake in the success of the company, a very real stake in the success of the company. And that should motivate them to work better and just make everything better. For the employee, there's also the element that stock options are kind of sexy. That There are dreams of, of having great wealth. If the company that you work for just goes through the roof in terms of its stock market cap, then you can make that great wealth. Of course, you could just go out and buy the stock. You don't actually need to get it as compensation, but there you go. From the employer perspective, it also has the advantage of preserving cash. They don't have to pay cash compensation to the extent they provide options or restricted stock. For a startup company in particular, who tend to use the stock-based compensation a lot, although, of course, the big ones, Facebook, Amazon, they all use it. But for startup companies, that cash can be so important. Final thing, for the employer, if we go back in history again to before 2006, a great advantage of stock options was that they didn't show up as an expense on the company's financials. That is, at-the-money options were treated as though they had zero value because there was no spread between the value. In fact, they didn't have zero value. In fact, they did have value because of the upside potential. But before 2006, that's how accounting did it. They said, oh, no, it's zero. That changed after 2006. Now you need to use fair market value of the option, which is, remember I said a lot of companies are doing restricted stock units now. Well, that's actually the reason why it used to be that stock options were the only way to avoid an expense on your statement because stock always had intrinsic value. So it was always compensation that was measured on your income statement. But now since whether it's options or actual stock, they're all going to hit your bottom line for financial accounting purposes. You can choose and prefer stock often. 
Of course. Now, issues arise at this point from stock-based compensation from a transfer pricing lens. Can you talk a little bit about what happens at that intersection? Yeah, certainly. So R&D cost sharing, we'll get to later when we get to the Altera case. That gets all the attention. But in fact, stock-based compensation as a transfer pricing issue is broader than that. Anytime that a company that has options provides services that are going to be done on a cost plus basis, well, you got to figure out what the costs are that are in it. And in fact, even if it's not cost plus, any other comparable profits method analysis is going to be operating profit after all expenses, including a stock-based compensation. So it matters in every transfer pricing area for comparability purposes, right? Where transfer pricing is all about, when you're applying CPM, it's all about finding comparable companies and benchmarking your results, your tested party's results against those comparable companies. So the comparable companies are using GAAP. They're using generally accepted accounting principles. So that means you should use GAAP, presumably, for your tested party, for the taxpayer themselves as well in general transfer pricing areas. As we'll see, in R&D cost sharing, on the other hand, the tax deduction approach is often used. So what happens under GAAP? is you value the options on the date that the option is granted and you amortize them over the vesting period. So you get the value of the option, amortize it over the three years that it vests and take an expense each year. That's gap. But for tax, the rule is quite different. The rule says for options as opposed to restricted stock. The rule is you don't value it until the exercise date, and that is the exercise date of the option, and then it is the spread between the the price that you have to pay for the option and the value on that date. Now, that could be years later. That could be well after you've performed the services, and from an economics point of view, that is really an investment decision. The fact that you continue to hold the option after it vested was an investment choice and shouldn't, in my opinion, be considered compensation for the increase in value after that. Of course. Now, if we could take just one minute there to give a little summary, this is getting into deeper baseball, especially for the 101 folks out there, but stock-based compensation, also known as share-based compensation or equity compensation, is a way of paying company members with equity in the business, ranging from employees to directors to executives. While it's no surprise that stock-based compensation is a very attractive incentive for both companies and employees, it can create transfer pricing flare-ups, which draws even more attention to cost-sharing agreements and intercompany agreements as a whole. Now, Professor, how has BEPS impacted the treatment of stock-based compensation? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The, the answer is surprisingly little. From the initial BEPS action plan in 2013, as folks presumably know, BEPS was all about base erosion and profit shifting. It was a global uh, project led by the OECD where all the countries of the world got together and tried to update the rules, the international tax rules, including transfer pricing rules. 
And that started in 2013. It's ongoing now. People may have heard of BEPS 2.0 or the, the pillars that are going on right now to try and get e-commerce companies in particular. But as I said, nothing has really happened. The OEC studied the issues back in 2004, but after BEPS, the OECD guidelines on transfer pricing only mention stock-based compensation once, and that's talking about accounting comparability. They don't even talk about it when they deal with cost-sharing agreements, or as, as the guidelines call it, cost-contribution agreements. And that may be partially that under the OECD method, cost contribution agreements are actually done based on the value that is provided by the R&D service provider rather than just on the cost. So we go back to kind of the same question that we have with cost plus services, where the value is the economic value. I was about to say uh, in one of your last answers where we were bringing up gap rules versus tax rules. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear from some listeners who typically tune into the tax provision podcast that we have, but now we've also invited R&D to the table. And now we have a, a nice, happy family of listeners who have crossed uh, uh -huh. between three different podcasts. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> now, what makes stock-based compensation especially contentious in the U.S.? Right. So R&D cost sharing is, as I said, the big issue. And R&D cost sharing really is profit shifting generally. And it is generally done by U.S. companies. So R&D cost sharing will be between a U.S. parent company and its subsidiary in a low tax jurisdiction. Now, why is it so contentious? Part of it is that the tax deduction rule is so very different than the, the gap rule, than the accounting rule. And that can be a huge, huge difference. When it comes to stock options, it's altogether possible that the valuation using Black-Scholes model for accounting purposes is a thousand times smaller than the exercise date value for tax. And in fact, the exercise date value is so large that some of the most successful companies, because it's the most successful companies that will have the largest spread at exercise, back in the day at least, some of the most successful companies actually had losses for tax purposes. Now, we've gone to restricted stock units. There's nowhere near the huge difference there because the value of the stock may go up. Tesla stock went up by, by 10 times from the start to the end of 2020, but not a thousand times. So in some sense, it's less contentious going forward than in the past. I think a name that, as I mentioned before, listeners will, will probably recognize from our Hot Off the Press podcast is Altera, that that case that just recently came to a close, but stock-based compensation was a main area of dispute between the two parties. Can you tell us some more about what was at issue in that case? So that's a great question. That is the multi-billion dollar question. Yes. Altera covered the years 2004 and 2007 for one uh, uh, semiconductor company, Altera, and it involved $80 million worth of tax. But we're really talking billions. So I looked at Facebook's 2019 financial statements, and they took a charge to their tax as the cumulative expense that 
they have to recognize now that Altera came out unfavorably for the taxpayer, cumulative expense of $1.1 billion in tax. And that's just Facebook. There are all lots of other companies. So what is R&D cost sharing? R&D cost sharing is joint development of intangibles for separate exploitation. And as I said a moment ago, it's typically between a U.S. parent company that has a lot of pre-existing intangible property and at some point in time, a brand new subsidiary that has no operations and is based in a tax haven. And over time, the subsidiary will grow in the amount of operations it has, but it doesn't bring any existing intangibles to it. So there are two levers that U.S. taxpayers use to kind of shift profits to the low tax jurisdiction. One of them is by trying to minimize the amount of the so-called buy-in or in the terminology of the, of the current cost-sharing arrangements, platform contribution transaction, PCT, if they can lower the size of that payment that the tax haven has to pay to the U.S. company to get access to that pre-existing intangible, that can be huge, right? The lower that number is, the higher the profits will be abroad in the tax haven lower in the U.S. That's the big issue. That's the issue in Veritas, Amazon, and so on. Cost sharing, but a smaller lever is the ongoing cost sharing of R&D costs and that cost sharing transactions, they're called. So what you have is you have the companies, um, the R&D employees, the ones who are doing the R&D, typically or, or frequently, that's all going to be in the U.S. or the majority of it's going to be in the U.S., and they're going to be paid with stock-based compensation. You're able to deduct all of that in the U.S. And the issue is, do you have to charge out some of that stock-based compensation? Do you have to put it in the cost pool, as we call it, for cost sharing, and charge out a share of that? The taxpayer is arguing that they don't have to charge out any of those costs. Or that's, that was Altera's argument. I personally believe that the number should be the gap number because that is the comparable number and, and arm's length is supposed to be the same thing that unrelated parties would do. And gap, I believe, is what they would tend to do. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that in a second. But the tax deduction is not something that unrelated parties would do, I, I believe. And Professor Chamberlain, what arguments have been made by taxpayers with cost-sharing agreements and by the IRS in this dispute? So one thing I want to mention first is that when I was researching for this program, I was shocked to learn that these restrictions, because in the earliest cases, 20 years ago, they were not. As I said, you know, all companies did with stock options. But Altera... It's not clear exactly what the balance was, but definitely some of it was restricted stock. And Facebook, I told you I looked at theirs and this 1.1 billion reserve they took, they're entirely restricted stock units. Let me talk about the arguments in a second and explain why that shocked me. So the overarching argument that taxpayers make is that unrelated parties do not and would not share stock option expense that that is an expense that only the U.S. parent in this case 
would bear. And if this tax haven subsidiary and the U.S. parent were in a joint development arrangement with each other, the tax haven subsidiary would not agree to share the U.S. parent's cost. And there was evidence, and there was evidence from arm's length comparables. Now, how good was that evidence? How comparable were those arrangements? Uh, that's that's kind of debatable. The IRS has said they're really not comparable at all. The taxpayers said they really are comparable and they really don't share stock options. So when I looked at this 20 years ago, I was one of the ones who studied the agreements between unrelated parties that were filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, agreements that were material to a company. And these are agreements, joint development agreements, and other types of agreements between unrelated parties. And I was convinced that, in fact, it was true that parties did not agree to share each other's uh, stock-based compensation expense. Now, some of that may be because in many cases, both parties did some R&D and both of them issued stock options to their own employees. So they agreed, we'll each bear our own R&D and it kind of comes out in the wash. But 20 years ago, the evidence did point in that direction. Some of that evidence, now I get to why I'm shocked about the, the RSU, about the restricted stock units. Some of that evidence 20 years ago was simply that they agreed to follow generally accepted accounting principles. And back before 2006, those accounting principles said for at-the-money options, it was zero. But even back then, if you had restricted stock, the amount for accounting purposes would have been the value of the stock. So I actually recently, after joining Cal Poly's faculty, tried to look at this again and went to the SEC filings. And I found that those SEC filings are now redacted. They don't provide you the information that they did 20 years ago. And they are they use this term full-time equivalent rate, which is a fixed rate for each hour that an R&D employee engages in. Interesting. So we don't know. Yeah. It's a black box. That might include stock-based compensation expense. We don't really know. But now, anyway, so that's the overarching one, arm's length comparables. And as we were laying the groundwork right there, the issue has been the subject of litigation for over 20 years, culminating in this most recent case, Altera versus the IRS. What can you tell us about the history of the litigation and the final outcome in Altera? goes back 20 years. And the earliest case was under the 1968 regulations. There was Seagate was the company that was in litigation. The IRS actually won a summary judgment thing. Seagate tried to say, look, this is ridiculous. Of course, we don't have to care this. The court said, yeah, we do have to hear about this. But the IRS backed off. What we heard in the community was that the IRS was arguing for option models, the Black-Scholes model, what they use for accounting purposes now. And the sense they were getting was that the judge wasn't interested in such a complicated model <laughs> and was going to come out against them. They backed off and they said, look, now, by the time Seagate, by the time they backed off, there were the 1995 regulations. Those 1995 regulations, they were hoping would get them over the hump. Those regulations said that all costs had to be shared, but they were not specific about 
stock-based compensation. The IRS, in this case, argued the tax deduction amount, the spreaded exercise. The tax court looked at the arm's length evidence, some of the evidence that uh, I myself had prepared 20 years ago. I wasn't the only one, of course. Many people came up with this evidence of what arm's length parties did. And the, the tax court said, no, arm's length parties and the arm's length standard is overriding. And whatever arm's length parties do, that's what you have to follow. The Ninth Circuit saw it as a conflict between the arm's length standard and the all costs requirement. And initially, there was you know interesting case, the Xilinx case, where the Ninth Circuit initially came out in the IRS's favor and said all costs trumps because it's more specific. But then they had a rehearing and the court flip-flopped and said, no, arm's length applies in all cases, which is a, an important holding for transfer pricing in general, not just here. Now, the IRS wasn't happy with this result. They lost Xilinx. Xilinx got away with not including any stock options in the cost pool. But the IRS did not acquiesce in that case. They disagreed with it, but they didn't seek to take it to the Supreme Court. They didn't litigate it in another circuit or anything. They just said, no, we have new regulations out in 2012 that were extremely detailed and very specific that stock-based compensation needs to be shared. Now we finally get to Altera. So Altera was a case that, that happened after the 2012 regulations. And Altera decided that they were going to buck the regulations. They weren't going to share stock options and they're going to fight it. And in 2015, the tax court took it up under the 2012 regulations. And what they said to the IRS is, you already lost this in Xilinx. We already found that sharing stock options was not arm's length. So you lose again. Moreover, we're going to throw out those regulations entirely, say that they're invalid. They also said that you didn't do it right. You didn't follow the rules for how you enact regulations. Now, the tax court panel said that, and then the IRS tried to take it to the full tax court. And the full tax court, 19 judges, unanimously agreed that it was not arm's length to share stock-based compensation. Okay, now... 2019, the IRS appealed, the Ninth Circuit took it in 2019, and they overturned the tax court, overturned all 19 judges, and said the commensurate with income standard, commensurate with income standard that was added to the 42 regs in 1986, that it allows the regulations to impose a purely internal methodology for transfer pricing where there are no comparables. So interestingly, they kind of, even though in Xilinx, they had said, yeah, these comparables look good and we think you lose on them. They kind of, in this case said, well, you know, we're not so sure about those comparables. There was no discussion of restricted stock units, which I would love for there to have been. And looking at the comparables and seeing where the comparables were probably stock options, and these were restricted stock units, and also gap rules had changed. So maybe the new agreements, if you were to find new agreements, would have gone in the IRS's favor. But in any case, the court said, we don't care what the comparables say. We don't think they're comparable. We're going to uphold the IRS regulation. The IRS regulation says that you do it based on the tax deduction. 
unless you make an election for options to do it on the accounting method. So they won, uh, the IRS won. The Ninth Circuit refused to rehear the case when Altair asked them to, and the Supreme Court refused to take the case. So it is the law of the land. You know, you have to share stock options, at least in the Ninth Circuit. So it'll be interesting to see if some of the other circuits, Eighth Circuit or, or other circuits come back. First, if taxpayers take it up in other circuits, you know, the full tax court said one thing and the appeals court said a different thing. So they may well roll the dice and see what another circuit says. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. In speaking of the future, and as you put it, interesting is, is the only word, especially if, if you're a seasoned uh, you know, transfer pricing professional. Uh, th this case might make, just, just on everything you described, might make a great Netflix show. And that's even before we get to, this is where it takes like a Wes Anderson turn. You mentioned the, the 19 judges and the ninth court that turned them down. <laughs> Wasn't it that one of the judges passed away. Yes, yes. So right yes. there, you have you have all the makings of, of a very interesting TV show. I, I don't know if you could get anybody <laughs> to sit through transfer pricing, but they said the same thing about chess and the Queen's Gambit, and look at that. That's true. If you have someone who can write this like the yeah. writers of, of if, uh, Queen's Gambit did it, <laughs> it may, may well have it. Yeah, the, 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 judge, the first judge died, yeah. uh, and they published the ruling with that judge's as one of the ones who decided in favor of the IRS. That's right. Then they said, well, maybe we shouldn't have done that because right. the opinion didn't come out first and they withdrew it. And it's yeah. a good thing they did that because in an entirely different case involving the same judge, the court, the, I think it was the Supreme Court, said, no, you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. So a new judge came on and the same answer was... And one of the things I love about podcasts is in one podcast episode, albeit a, 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 an in-depth discussion at that, but you can get a, an entire season out of Netflix in, in terms of the drama. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, let's start from that part of the movie where we're at now. We're, we're a little bit outside of this decision. It's, it's been a while. We've seen an immediate effect on businesses, but the movie is not over. Tell us about how you've seen this affect business both nationally and around the globe, and what would cost-sharing agreements look like moving forward from here? It was never about business, per se. It was always about yeah. tax, is one thing. Right. So the businessmen go on and do what they do, and the tax right. people are the ones that are dealing with this. Foreign multinationals, so foreign-based businesses, they just shrugged their shoulders because this was always the U.S. They weren't involved in this. Yep. So U.S. multinationals are going to take their lumps, 
Um, you know, as I said, Facebook reported a $1.1 billion catch-up tax provision. I, I don't know what the status is, how exactly that's going to play out in terms of the IRS auditing them or, or they make a self-help adjustment. I don't know how that works. But this was always kind of a, a, a lesser issue. Remember, I mentioned the buy-in issue before, and that is an even bigger issue. The 2011 cost-sharing regulations, that is the temporary regulations at that point, were introduced this investor model, and many people thought it would kill cost-sharing agreements because it seemed to not allow the tax haven company to earn anything more than just you know an investor's return. They aren't gonna, they don't get to really buy into the profitability of the intangibles. But we know from Facebook, which is in litigation right now, that at least Facebook and presumably other companies went ahead and continued CSAs, cost-sharing agreements, and thought they could still get good results. What about BEPS and Guilty? I said BEPS didn't directly address stock-based compensation, but it did address profit shifting, right? That was what it was about. And the way that people got benefits from these tax haven subsidiaries, the tax havens are being you know shut down right, right. and guilty the global intangible low tax income thing says even if you do manage to get profit into the low tax jurisdiction the us is going to tax it anyway so i don't know what the answer is about beps and guilty and whether they have killed cost sharing agreements once and for all we'll see that in the future that as they say remains to be seen but just to backtrack a little bit and summarize uh, a few points we've gone over so far as more and more companies expand globally stock-based compensation will be available but if it's not handled appropriately in cost-sharing agreements these beneficial incentives could create cross-border implications that could lead to audits adjustments and worst case scenario legal examination the recent Altera versus IRS case demonstrates how MEs and tax authorities butt heads around its inclusion in cost sharing agreements and why taxpayers need to pay close attention to jurisdictional rules, especially in a post-BEPS tax environment. Now, Professor Chamberlain, the IRS recently published a legal advice memorandum on cost-sharing agreements and stock-based compensation costs, which draws from the Altera case. Uh, Can you tell us more about this memo? What does it demonstrate about the IRS's focus on this type of agreement after this legal triumph? This this memo, it's a memo from the chief counsel to the IRS field, telling them how they should handle certain issues. They're kind of somewhat minor issues, kind of side issues, except maybe the third one. They apply only to those cost-sharing agreements where the, the parties did not share stock-based compensation from the beginning. There are, are certainly a number of cost-sharing agreements where they didn't want to buck the regulations. They weren't as brave as Altera, and they, they did decide to share stock-based compensation. So the first question that was asked was, what is the proper year for an IRS adjustment in these non-SBC non-stock-based compensation C cost-sharing agreements. And the answer that chief counsel gave was each year as it came. So you go back during the statute of limitations, look at each year and add it to the cost pool in the specific year. 
The second question had to do with the so-called reverse clawback provisions. Now, after the 2012 regulations came out, many taxpayers complied. They shared stock-based compensation, but they put a clawback provision, not a reverse clawback provision, a clawback provision, in case the regulations were invalidated, as they seem to have been in the Altera tax court case. And what they said was they would undo all these option payments that had come from the tax haven. The U.S. company would, would send that money back to the, uh, to the tax haven. After the tax court win, so 2015, many companies went non-compliant with the regulations. They looked at Altera and said, these regulations are no good. We're going to stop sharing stock-based compensation. But they put reverse clawback provisions in there, meant some of them put reverse clawback provisions in their cost-sharing agreements that said Altera is overturned and the regulation proves to be valid. We will go ahead and catch up in the year that it went invalid, we'll catch up the prior year SBC that we did not share and share it now. And this is, so the second issue was if the new modified cost sharing agreement doesn't specify if the IRS had come in and made an adjustment for stock-based compensation, will they be required to double count it and make this true up adjustment under the contract as well as bearing the cost of the IRS adjustment? And here they did the sensible thing. The chief counsel said, no, no double counting. The IRS adjustment will count towards the amount that they need to claw back. And that's kind of a small issue, right? Right. The third issue said... What about if the prior year is closed and can the IRS then make a stock-based compensation adjustment? And the first answer was uh, no, <laughs> or not obviously, let's say. Um, if taxpayers did put in these reverse clawback provisions, that puts the IRS in a good position and, for and they can force the taxpayers to abide by them and go ahead and share the stock-based compensation in the current year, catching up all those closed years. So they aren't going to let taxpayers wriggle out of those. Right. If they were stupid enough to put, put them in their contracts, they got to do them. But maybe they weren't so stupid. <laughs> maybe right. it's a good thing they put this in because the IRS says, look, if there are too many closed years, you need to think about blowing up the entire CSA and saying that under 42-7 I-5, where cost-sharing transaction payments are consistently and materially disproportionate, the IRS can blow up the agreement altogether and treat it as though the U.S. parent, to say that, in fact, the U.S. parent owns the foreign intangible property that they thought the tax haven company owned. And therefore, you know, the U.S. parent will get those profits, not the tax haven, and they'll make adjustments going forward forever. Indeed. And incredible detail that we've been able to give our listeners throughout the show. Uh, that said, you know, let's let's just say the CFO is asking and <laughs> you're the tax professional. Let's let's boil this down. What do M&Es need to take away about cost sharing agreements and stock based compensation from both the Altera case and the resulting IRS memo? Well, one thing is, if you do have a reverse clawback provision in your agreement, you better abide by it. You better better make that adjustment. Even if you don't, 
If you're afraid of having your cost-sharing agreement blown up, you should consider making self-initiated adjustment for transfer pricing, even with respect to closed years. If you do not, if you as the tax director have, or the CFO have the, if you as the CFO have the appetite, uh, you could be prepared to fight this. Right. And uh, you can expect the IRS to, to push back hard and even take it to court. Is there any general advice that, that you have for M&Es navigating stock-based compensation? Yeah, well, you know, as I said, it's the business is what really matters, not tax. And multinationals should just do what's right for the business. If it's a good thing to compensate employees with stock-based compensation, because as we said at the beginning of this, it aligns the interests of the company with that of the employees, especially the R&D employees. If that's what you want to do as a business, keep doing it and follow generally accepted accounting principles uh, and let tax follow. Now, an interesting question is if you have stock options as opposed to uh, restricted stock, you do have this election potentially where you can agree to do the cost sharing based on accounting principles rather than tax principles. And a lot of companies, as far as I know, I think it's the majority of them decided to do tax. And I always thought that was weird. I always thought that it was strange that they were betting against themselves. The tax deduction could be huge if your company is extremely successful. And while by comparison, the gap number is always going to be positive, you're always going to have to share some. So that's a downside. If you don't do well, the tax answer is better. But if you do incredibly well, you're better off making the election. So, well, I, I mean, like so much of global tax nowadays, stock based compensation isn't having it's 15 minutes of fame. It's here to stay. And multinationals need to take <laughs> proactive measures to make sure that they're handling it with care, especially in the United States. So what does this look like? Be open to reexamining and reevaluating the structure and positions around the inclusion of stock-based compensation and have robust documentation and evidentiary support to back it up. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp 
Welcome back, everyone. We're with Professor Chamberlain now for my favorite part of the show, a rapid-fire round of questions we like to call What We Want to Know, and that's just to get to know our guest a little bit better, more in the personal areas, a little bit less in transfer pricing, but inevitably it comes up. Always question one, Professor, are you ready? I'm ready. Question number two, what's a transfer pricing mistake you've seen M&Es make over and over again? One thing that you see a lot is telling inconsistent stories. They'll tell the U.S. one thing, and they'll tell the foreign jurisdiction another. And maybe that used to fly, <laughs> but it's not going to fly anymore. After BEPS, yep. you need to have the so-called master file where you tell the same story to everyone. And I think M&Es are doing it to a greater extent, but it's still, still something they need to pay attention to. What's a universal quality you find in your best students? Definitely intellectual curiosity. Uh, you know, it's in a willingness to not just learn the rules, not just learn how to apply them, but poking deeper and trying to understand the reasons for the particular rules and playing it out more. What is one skill you think anyone going into transfer pricing needs today that they might not have needed years ago? Yeah, yeah. Transfer pricing and international tax in general has changed after Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, so that now transfer pricing and international tax experts and corporations need to model the overall tax situation they have. It used to be fairly straightforward. You knew that you know putting intangibles into a low-tax jurisdiction was good. <laughs> you knew that was going to be helpful. Now it's not necessarily so clear. You have to say, you know, what are the guilty implications of this? What are the FIDI, foreign domestic intangible income effects, and so on? Just much more complex. What's one thing you would say you've learned from your students? And conversely, what do you hope your students learn from you? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think from from what I've learned from my students... One thing is to keep what I'm teaching simple and logical and be prepared to give the reasons for the rules to make it more interesting and make it easier to get wrap your head around. It's really hard when you're an expert, you can get into the depths of it as we have in this podcast and really lose your students. But breaking it down, explaining it from the basics is, uh, is key. In terms of what my students have learned from me, at Cal Poly, our motto is learn by doing. And I like to say that's what I try to do. I try, try to help prepare the students for the real world, whether that's going to be you know, the major accounting firms or a smaller accounting firm, whether it's the government or whether it's going straight to a corporation. You know, Hopefully, I'm helping them be prepared for that, giving them some real life case studies Amen. Thank you so much, Professor Chamberlain. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thanks. We want to thank everyone at home for joining us. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. 
My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>